Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. While the world was at war in the 1940s, the citizens of Wilmington were hard at work. During World War II, Wilmington was transformed into a wartime city that churned out massive warships right on the banks of the Cape Fear River and trained soldiers for the front lines up the road at Camp Davis and on the hallowed Civil War mounds at Fort Fisher. We've revisited wartime Wilmington on several occasions on this podcast, including our episode on the active service of the USS North Carolina and the homegrown campaign to save it from the scrapyard as a tribute to those who fought in the war. We also talked about the Nazi POW camps that held more than 500 German prisoners of war in the port city, the legend of the U-boat bombing of the Ethel Dow chemical plant, and the history of the enduring Hannah S. Block USO Center in downtown Wilmington. The region's contribution to the war effort could stop there and still leave a seismic legacy of a community doing its part when its country needed it most. But Wilmington's heritage as a World War II city runs much deeper than just those stories. The Cape Fear region played as enormous a role in the war effort as the warships that were rolling off its riverbanks. More than 200 warships would be built in Wilmington over a five-year period from 1941 to 1946, an enormous employment opportunity with the North Carolina Shipbuilding Company that catapulted the city from a quiet coastal town to a massive center of war manufacturing. But the work wasn't just happening on the riverbanks. Among the military branches that turned farm boys and city boys alike into soldiers, the Cape Fear region also played host to the uniquely qualified and fiercely trailblazing WASPs, or as they're also known, the Women's Air Force Service Pilots. These pilots could handle their own, standing alongside their male counterparts, and they put their lives on the line to ensure that these men were prepared for the real deal overseas, even though the military didn't always recognize their bravery. From the ground to the skies, these are the stories of the sacrifice and service of Americans, right here in the Cape Fear. This is Cape Fear Unearthed. 
the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. For this week's episode, we're returning to the 1940s to tell a few more stories from Wilmington's service as a wartime city during World War II. This month marks the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, a joyous moment that brought to a close the greatest and most harrowing event of the 20th century. In times of crisis, they say that people tend to show you what they're truly made of. And the citizens of Wilmington and its surrounding cities showed the country exactly what they were made of during the war. This week, we will discuss the towering legacy of this region as a shipbuilding hotspot that turned massive sheets of metal into ships destined for everything from battle to cargo shipping. And then we'll share the often untold story of the Wasps, a squadron of women pilots who proved that manning a military aircraft didn't require a man at all. Usually, we'd have a guest join us to discuss these topics further, but the continued COVID-19 quarantine has made that a little difficult. So this week, it's just me, sharing with you two stories as they have been passed down through history and told through legend. So sit back and settle in for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we return to the 1940s to talk wasps, warships, and wartime Wilmington. Part 1. A Kiss for the Axis from me. In 1941, the United States was in the grip of a moral and legal predicament. The world was at war, but America, a global superpower, was still sitting on the sidelines. The U.S.'s involvement in the conflict that had swept Europe for two years was inevitable, but President Franklin Delano Roosevelt could not yet engage in a war his country was not involved in, no matter how much he felt we should. Congress had seen to that by passing the Neutrality Acts in the years that led up to the war, which limited the country's involvement in global conflicts because of fears it had been pulled into World War I by the financial interest of manufacturing industries. Still, the country found a way to support the Allied powers fighting to subdue Nazi Germany and Japan through a commitment to supply the British military with warships to strengthen their active engagement with Hitler's forces and the rest of the Axis enemies. But Roosevelt knew the country could not just sit idly by and wait to be pulled into a war that it could see coming from a mile away. The various military branches were already shoring up their ranks, recruiting young men from every corner of the country to stand and fight against the powers of tyranny as soon as the call to duty was sounded. But the Maritime Commission also knew that it couldn't wait until after the country was officially at war to start growing its merchant vessel fleet. It needed to make sure it had ships ready to go when the time came. So they started contracting with existing shipbuilding companies to build warship after warship 
right on American soil. But these shipbuilders were already busy with commercial contracts, so they would have to establish new shipyards to get the country war ready. At the same time, several officials in Wilmington were looking to get the port city in on the action of the growing war manufacturing industry. In the years after the Civil War, a time when Wilmington had been a vital part of the Confederacy's stronghold with a key railroad network and the largest population in the state, the city had since settled in to life as a smaller coastal community. But one thing it has always had since its beginning is a rich history of shipbuilding, which was being done on the shores of the Cape Fear River all the way back to its establishment in the 1700s. The river, as we've noted numerous times before on this show, provided the region with a unique deep water outlet to the ocean that was attractive to companies looking to build seafaring vessels. For example, Barry's Shipyard, across the river from downtown Wilmington on Eagles Island, was a shipbuilding site that produced a number of Confederate vessels during the Civil War, including the ironclad North Carolina. But after the war, which saw modern naval warfare shift from wooden to iron vessels, shipbuilding took a hit in Wilmington. It saw a brief resurgence during World War I, when more than 4,000 shipbuilders worked on turning out steel cargo vessels locally with the Carolina Shipbuilding Company. But the work didn't last after the war, like so many had hoped. And the arrival of the Great Depression in the 1930s only further dampened the prospects of a rebound. By the end of that decade, Wilmington was looking for a win, and the country's growing war effort could be the perfect opportunity to put its residents to work. But it would take a lot of lobbying on the part of North Carolina officials to convince the Maritime Commission that Wilmington, a sleepy coastal town most had probably never heard of, would be the perfect site for a mass shipbuilding operation. Working in its favor was a cachet of undeniable attributes. It wasn't far from Washington, D.C., it had plenty of space for a shipyard to grow into, and its direct access to the ocean would be perfect for launching deepwater vessels. With other groups also whispering in the commission's ear to hand their coastal city a shipyard contract, places like Moorhead City were also under consideration. The competition was fierce, and rightfully so. Landing this opportunity meant thousands of jobs for locals millions of dollars funneled into the city's economy, and the pride of manufacturing the instruments of war right in your front yard. Thanks to its proximity to the Newport News Shipbuilding and Dry Dock Company in Virginia, which would operate the new shipyard, the North Carolina Shipbuilding Company finally found its home in Wilmington in November 1940 a decision co-signed by Roosevelt and the Maritime Commission. Construction on the initial 56-acre shipyard, located about three miles south of downtown Wilmington on the river, began on February 3, 1941. Looking back on it today, 
it's kind of hard to grasp just how massive a job it would have been to construct a warship manufacturing yard out of a flat coastal terrain. According to Ralph Scott's book on the shipyard, it required dredging 400,000 yards of material from the site just to form its needed landscape, before then adding a nearly 1,000-foot steel bulkhead to secure the site. Crews then had to lay the railroad lines that would be used to get huge materials into the shipyard. They had to build the shipways in which each vessel would be constructed from the keel up. They created a new system of roads just so automobiles could come in and out of the yard. And they constructed the buildings for managing the site and its workers. Thankfully, work moved at a lightning pace primarily out of an urgency to get ahead of the war on the horizon. According to Scott, within three months, enough of the site was done to begin laying the keels for the yard's first two vessels on May 22, 1941. From there, work at the North Carolina Shipbuilding Company exploded, and it couldn't come at a better time. The first vessel to be completed and ready for launch was the Zebulon B. Vance, named for the 37th and 43rd governor of North Carolina. The vessel was launched into the Cape Fear River in front of thousands of onlookers on December 6, 1941. For you history buffs, yes, that is just one day before Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and pulled the United States into World War II. The day Roosevelt and the country had feared had arrived. But with sites like the Wilmington Shipyard, America was in a much better position to go to war. Within two years, the shipyard had already been contracted to complete nearly 40 vessels by March 1943. It even had to expand to keep up with the workload, gobbling up nearly 30 more acres by 1942. In another two years' time, it would expand once again to encompass 80 more acres and open its second and third piers. By the time it stopped manufacturing in 1946, the Wilmington shipyard was a sprawling 160 acres. At its peak, it had nine shipways operating at once. On average, building a ship took 32 days, from laying its keel to launching it into the river, according to noted local World War II historian Wilbur Jones. With war now underway, the need for these warships only intensified, but the North Carolina Shipbuilding Company and Wilmington itself were starting to feel the pressure. The shipyard in Wilmington employed more than 24,000 people at its height, more than all other New Hanover County manufacturing jobs combined, including the Atlantic Coastline Railroad. Workers traveled from counties up to 100 miles away to work at the yard, and traffic became snarled by all the workers making their way into their jobs at all hours of the day. And this is all in addition to the thousands of troops being trained for battle at Camp Davis in Holly Ridge, 
who would make their way down to Wilmington and its beaches for the weekend or while they were on leave so that they could visit the famous USO Center. In his book, Scott also notes that many of the shipyard's workers came from local farms and occasionally had to miss work so that they could tend to crops. An absence the company's president, Roger Williams, forgave because they were contributing to two war industries, food production and shipbuilding. Black residents made up about 30% of the workforce at the shipyard, where they held positions as everything from riveters to drillers. Scott notes that while integration in public spaces was still years away, even in the shipyard's cafeteria, work assignments at the yard were mixed race, something not often seen in southern shipyards. Women were also employed at the yard, initially as tool checkers, before taking on roles as welders and in the plumbing manufacturing department. They faced a tough workday, though, having to lift equipment up to 50 pounds and dealing with ill-fitting and unsafe uniforms meant for men. But they were hard workers, and they made sure that the work got done. By 1944, the shipyard became even more reliant on women to fill these positions, as the draft called more and more men away from their workstations. Work at the shipyard wasn't always the safest profession for its employees. Conditions got better over time, but injuries were very common. Numerous lawsuits were filed against the company, and attempts to unionize were blocked. But the work continued. In total, the shipyard would produce 243 ships between 1941 and 1946. The majority of them were Liberty ships, while the rest were larger merchant vessels built to last through the war and hopefully live a life of service after the fighting was done. For fans of local history, the naming of a ship was often given to notable figures from the regions and the state's past. Among those honored were Benjamin Smith, former Brunswick Town resident and governor, Cornelius Harnett, local Revolutionary War patriot who died in Wilmington as a prisoner of the British. William Hooper, one of three North Carolina signers of the Declaration of Independence. And Virginia Dare, the first English child born in the New World as part of the lost Roanoke colony. Eventually, the ships would get more general, but still striking names like Witch of the Wave, Sturdy Beggar, and Storm King. Of the ships built by hand in Wilmington, only 28 would be lost in war, 23 of them due to enemy action. Most of them remained in active service, whether as part of the Navy or under commercial contracts, for years and even decades after the war. The yard's first ship, the SS Zebulon B. Vance, would be turned into a hospital ship under the name SS John J. Meany in 1943, only to have its initial name restored the following year. The Wilmington shipyard would launch its final ship, the SS Santa Isabel, on April 16, 1946. Then it was over. 
The tools were put down, the constant stream of workers dwindled, and the site was left empty for the first time since before the vast majority of America could tell you where Pearl Harbor was. The shuttering of the shipyard led to a steep economic downturn in Wilmington, as workers suddenly found themselves out of a job. Like had been the case after World War I, many had hoped that the shipyard would continue even after the war, but it didn't. So the city and the state started looking at how they could take ownership of the shipyard and put their residents back to work, while also securing North Carolina, a deepwater port. The Maritime Commission would hold on to the valuable facility for years after the war, swatting away any proposals to buy it or transfer it to the state of North Carolina out of an abundance of caution that it might need the reserve shipyard should war break out again. The commission resisted handing the property to the newly launched North Carolina State Ports Authority for five years, even though they had started lobbying for it even before the war was over. However, persistent negotiations wore them down, and on November 16, 1949, the state signed a 50-year lease for the northeast portion of the site for $1 a year. To immediately increase its presence, the Ports Authority bought 29 more acres adjacent to the site to build out its port. The state would purchase the land outright from the commission in 1971 and is today still operated as the Port of Wilmington, which is the state's largest port. One of the most visually striking things to come out of this area's war efforts was the reserve fleet of dozens of unneeded vessels known as the Mothball or Ghost Fleet, which were anchored in tight formation on the banks of the Brunswick River, across from Wilmington, after the war. Aerial photographs preserve the images of these massive ghost ships lying in wait for a conflict or an order that for many never came. Some of the ships, many of which weren't even built in the Wilmington area, would sit anchored in the river for up to two decades. Some were called up to service for the Korean and Vietnam Wars, while most were sent to the scrapyards or sunk as part of artificial reefs. The North Carolina Ship Building Company only had a short life, but it was a necessary one. It gave Wilmington the boost of employment and vitality that it had been deprived of after the Depression, and allowed its citizens to contribute to the fight for stability in a world teetering on the brink. Even when it was tough work that tested its workers and even the infrastructure of Wilmington as a whole, the pride of building and welding warships on the banks of the Cape Fear River was enough to pull this region through the hard times. You can see that in the lyrics of the North Carolina Ship Building Company's theme song, called Down the Ways, a reference to a ship launching from its shipway into the water for testing. The song's opening lines give a good indication of the message its workers were sending with each ship that they put their blood, sweat, 
and patriotism into. Down the ways another one goes, finding its way to the sea. And every time it takes a cross, a plane, or a gun, that's a kiss for the axis from me. Part 2. Wasps on the Wing While shipyard workers were making sure Navy men had sturdy vessels on which to sail into war, a group of highly trained women were working to ensure the Air Force could hold its own in the skies. In the summer of 1943, a group of women known as the Wasps, the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, arrived at Camp Davis in Holly Ridge without so much as a telegram to inform management of their arrival. Camp Davis had been opened by the Army in 1940 as an anti-aircraft training facility that also sent some of its 20,000 troops to Fort Fisher for additional live fire training. Among its other achievements, Camp Davis has the honor of being one of the main bases for the WASPs, a hard-fought-for program that brought women into the war effort like never before. It can all be traced back to two women, Jacqueline Cochran and Nancy Harkness Love, both of the Army Air Force, who believed that women shouldn't be excluded from the action of war just because of societal stereotypes. There were women who were ready and willing to step up and do what was needed to prepare the nation for war, even before it had officially entered World War II. Cochran and Love were adamant that skilled female pilots could be used for non-combat flying and ferrying missions at home, freeing up men to be sent to the front lines where they were needed most. Love oversaw the Women's Auxiliary Ferrying Squadron, and Cochran captained the Women's Flying Training Detachment. But in 1943, after persistence from the two women, the military officially sanctioned their efforts under the WASP's name. Cochran would command the academy that trained the future pilots, and Love would be in charge of their ferrying division which often required them to fly newly built aircrafts from the factories to bases across the country. During the war, the women would ferry more than 12,000 planes. Aspiring wasps would train for 27 weeks at Avenger Airfield in Sweetwater, Texas, undergoing a boot camp not unlike their male counterparts. They woke up at the break of dawn for physical drills. They marched in formation. They trained in flying school. They studied military tactics. They maintained their barracks. And then they trained some more. They called themselves the Avenger Girls. And in more recent years, they've been remembered as the real-life superheroes that they were. But in the 1940s, the military and the men whom they had come to replace didn't show them as much respect. When they showed up at Camp Davis in 1943, the commander of the base vowed that they wouldn't do a thing at his camp. But after Cochran stepped in, he changed his tune, and the wasps got to work. 
The women were trained in flying everything from jalopy, dauntless dive bombers to major aircrafts all over eastern North Carolina. By most accounts, they were proficient behind the controls of more aircrafts than the typical pilot in training. And that almost certainly bruised the egos of the men around them. But their jobs required complete trust in their fellow pilots, regardless of gender. What they were doing was highly dangerous work, even if they weren't on the front lines. Although the primary function of the program was to ferry planes from factories to bases, the WASPs also participated in tow-target exercises that required them to fly planes with targets outstretched behind them some 300 yards. Then, male pilots in training would try to shoot the targets while in the air. Some accounts from the program say that the women would return from these exercises with artillery holes in the tails of their planes because the men weren't good enough shots yet. But it also shows just how dangerous their job was. And a few women would even lose their lives while participating in the program. At Camp Davis, 26-year-old Mabel Rollinson died when her plane crashed after a nighttime exercise in August 1943. The Army wouldn't pay for her body to be shipped back to her family, so it's said that her fellow wasps chipped in to pay for one final flight home. A lack of respect and recognition for the women in the program would unfortunately be a recurring hurdle for the wasps. Despite putting their lives on the line to prepare men for a war that they weren't even allowed to fight in, the wasps were never recognized as anything but civilians during the war. In the government's eyes, they were never members of the military. Even Walt Disney would create a wide-eyed, fluttering mascot for them named Fifanella before the military would recognize their service. In October 1944, the Army notified Cochran and the women of the program that it would be disbanded that December, even though its 18th class was just weeks from graduating. The government no longer saw a need for women pilots as more men finished their tours overseas and came back home capable of taking over these roles. With its final graduation of WASPs in December 1944, the program had given 1,074 women their wings. But because they lacked military status, none of the women could fly with the Air Force after the war. Some would stay on in non-flying capacities, while others sought out different, more grounded careers. It would take decades for the United States to correct the disservice they paid to the WASPs. First, in 1977, when former President Jimmy Carter signed a law giving the women who served as civilian pilots during World War II veteran status. Then, in 2009, former President Barack Obama further recognized their contributions by awarding surviving WASPs the Congressional Gold Medal, one of the highest honors in the U.S. military. The WASPs aren't talked about as much as some of the Wilmington region's other World War II contributions. 
But the fact that this region can say it was part of the birth of female military aviation is a legacy that we should be writing in the skies. It's too often thought that the threat of war is only where armies clash. Bombs explode and unassuming areas become bloody battlefields. But that is not the case. Right here in the Cape Fear, pioneering women pilots and thousands of shipbuilders put their love of country ahead of their lives because they felt it was their duty to do so. As we look back on the end of World War II, it affords us a chance to reflect on those heroic acts of service on the home front, which have left a staggering legacy of patriotism that's still as inspiring as ever. 75 years later. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and our look at the triumphs and sacrifices of wartime Wilmington. Thank you so much for joining me. Be sure to check back soon for our next episode when we will turn to another chapter in our local history book. Until then please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each of our episodes, and I always share my coverage of local history for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Kate Fear on Earth on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter that goes out every week. In it, I will include links to our new episodes and any supplemental pictures or videos that I uncover in my research, all delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com slash newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear on Earth was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth. <laughs>